millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Guy, I can hear seagulls. There are seagulls here. And um, we've actually been very worried since the lockdown started because, of course, they haven't got their usual supply of day trippers chips to feast what? on are you so t- we're we- talking about the flock of seagulls right they're with you <laughs> <laughs> they are yes we were really worried down here in brighton we thought they were, it was going to go full kind of the birds because they were going to get so hungry <laughs> <laughs> the birds is another band you mean flock of seagulls are going to turn well, cross, to- yeah, we have had flock of seagulls but um <laughs> So um, we had some trouble yesterday. We tried to do the interview yesterday and we had some trouble because you, you have malware there, don't you? I have malware. Yeah, exactly. Who else we know was, was Cream's original road manager. Um, <laughs> <laughs> malware. Obviously, I felt personally responsible for that. So I spent the rest of the day in therapy and then spent the night on the chapel floor uh, smiting myself with a, wearing a horsehair shirt. Will, will, will someone rid me of this priest? I, 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 I put it... <laughs> But no one came and saw you, did they? No, so you're, no they didn't. They didn't. You're but right. anyway, uh, but it's a shame because it was such a. We're having such a great time with our fantastic guest. We are, and our guest today has suddenly become so hip because his name has turned into a text abbreviation. No, but it's true. It's true. All the correspondence we've had when we've been setting this up, you're just thinking, why are you laughing at this? <laughs> But I mean, listen, this guy is incredible. I mean, you know, talk about, an, you know, this is real art school goes music, isn't it? If there, if there ever was any. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's get him on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. But it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. It's, it's get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. No. One, two. Two or two? Yes. No. I can hear. Yes. Hello, Gary. Very this down. is Gary here. Ah, you're deafening. <laughs> Hello, Gary. How are you? My cans are really low now. They were deafening a minute ago. Do I sound normal now? As normal as one can be in this day and age. <laughs> so, hello, Lloyd. Right. Well, hello, Lloyd. Uh, are we rolling? Yeah, we're rolling. <laughs> Hello, Gary. Hello, Guy. Ah, oh, Lol. <laughs> Lovely to hear you. What don't you know? <laughs> uh, well, nothing. What? So uh, let's call it a day. Well, I'm recording myself on Logic. Right. So. Well, that was excellent. Yeah, that was brilliant. Yeah. Man, that was so enlightening. <laughs> oh, is that it? Uh, yeah. What a, uh, what a long that's and varied a... life. And uh, we'll, we'll all the best. Yes, Merry well, Christmas. That's, that's you all over, you know, <laughs> recording yourself on Logic. Okay, we can start the interview then. Or, or the chat, <laughs> as we the like chat, to call yes, it. Yes, it's not an interview. Yes. Well, let's call it the chat. Yes. So, Lol, welcome. Where are you? Leatherhead. Are you in Leatherhead, Lol? <laughs> well, you still okay. This is like a Monty Python sketch, isn't it, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Lol, should we go to the beginning? 
Yes, well, I don't know. It's all gone Keystone Cops. Yes, go to the beginning. So what have you been doing in this time of uh, crisis? I'm very lucky because um, I can occupy my time pretty easily because I like to paint. In fact, I love to paint. So I, I do a lot of painting, whether it's in oils or in watercolours or whatever it is. I love to read. So I've got loads of reading done recently. And when Trev feels charitable, I go over to Trev's and make some music, which is like what I'm going to do when I've got off the phone to you guys. You're in a band with him, obviously, but do you play on other people's records as well? Yes, occasionally, whenever he feels the need. And I often wind up on the cutting room floor, but I go in there knowing that. <laughs> yeah. The point is I'm allowed to play and plug in. It's the pleasure of playing that gets me. Yes. It's Trevor we're talking about, right? Yeah, Trevor Horn, yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, because we did that thing together a couple of years back, didn't we, Lol, with the, for the Roundhouse? And I was going to say, what not? It was amazing to be on a stage with you and Trevor. Exactly. Quite extraordinary. The fun thing about the Trevor's band is that he always manages to pull in a couple of great guests to do a few bits and pieces. And um, the band itself was uh, such great musos. The reason we kept going, Trevor and I, even after the producers finished, is because Ash Sohn, the drummer, was happy to stay with us and play when he could. And I, I've always found it's the drummer that um, inspires me to play. Because, you know, I've been brought up with, like... Kev Godley, is, it was just me on guitar and Kevin on drums when we used to be kids. And uh, then later when I went to L.A. to live and work, I had uh, Stuart Copeland to have a bang with every Tuesday. We used to take an hour out and, and go and do our therapeutic bashes in a rehearsal room with Booker Room. So it's always been having a good drummer that's allowed me to just enjoy myself making a noise, you know. And uh, with Ash, it's just brilliant he's the best yeah, i so, just i just made a record and ash is on quite a bit of it and so is this guy and and ash is wonderful I, I love his style of playing if you don't know it everyone has to check out yeah. ash soon yeah and such a, a sweetheart to to be around you know so it that makes all the difference personality looking at your career my god you've done so much you know so we've had the trevor horn thing now obviously but godly and cream and so many different things and i know guy and i are really interested totally, in, in totally. how the whole 10 cc thing began but how hot legs began and how you all started off as some sort of writing unit back in in manchester yeah i mean this is based around a studio right it's brilliant that's what enabled me and kev to get into the business i suppose properly i mean kevin and i were a little a songwriting little duo right shades of simon and garfunkel and graham Goldman had already made a connection with the business because his brother-in-law, Harvey, managed Herman's Hermits. So Graham and his songs got access to London and because we were all in Manchester and the business. It wasn't until, I suppose, um, Eric Stewart, when he left the Mindbenders and wanted to learn how to produce and be a, an engineer stroke producer because that's the side he liked. He managed to get the money together uh, with Kennedy Street Artists, the agency in Manchester. They put some money in and they built Strawberry Studios. And while Eric was titting around with the new equipment that had come in, he needed a couple of suckers to play and bang in the studio endlessly while he set up his mics and wires and cables. So Kevin was only too happy to bang the drums and when he was getting weary i went in the studio and sat on the floor and and sang into the uh, bass drum mic not realizing that actually and i was singing this 
tune, Neanderthal Man, just to myself. And then they recorded that. Eric was recording it as a test. And, um, you know, the, <laughs> it's like a legend, you know. You just came up with that phrase. Yeah, yeah it was just a little ditty I was singing to keep my, me and yeah, yeah, Kevin yeah. going. And someone popped the red round and said, that's a, that's a hit, that's a smash. And so we got our foot in the door through Strawberry. And um, Graham was away at the time. He was in America working on contract as a songwriter. Because um, Graham, Graham, Graham back, had all these hits with the Yardbirds, had well, yeah, wait, but it's for everyone. A young man. That seems funny that he was hanging with yeah, a bunch yeah. of sort of unknowns like you. <laughs> Why was he banging with unknowns yeah. like us? Because we were from the same neighbourhood. Yeah, when, yeah. when Graham did his demos that he sent to his publishing house, me and Kev would be in his bedroom with him, you know, strumming along or whatever. And um, we grew up with Graham because he was in a band. It goes back... If you really want to go back, I mean, I haven't been here for a while. <laughs> yeah, come it on. It goes back on. to the youth club in Manchester. Yeah, no, we'd like Jewish to go back. youth club called the Jewish Lads Brigade. Yay, come on. Okay. So I, funnily enough, was the only one songwriting because I'd been inspired by the Beatles, this band that seemed to write their own songs. And when... Graham and his Never band, the Whirlwinds. No, <laughs> don't tell him that. <laughs> no, he had a band called the Whirlwinds. And uh, and I think Kevin left the band he had with me and my cousin Neil, the Sabres, to join the Whirlwinds because they were better and they wore makeup. They actually had fenders, guitars and things. We just, I just had, you know, <laughs> some piece of shit. I don't but I wrote a song which became the B-side of Graham and the Whirlwind's first record. The A-side was a Buddy Holly song, and Graham hadn't started writing yet, so that's how I remember that. But we all knew each other from that neighbourhood, the Jewish neighbourhood in Manchester. And right. Graham somehow met Eric in London when things were happening. So, And that's right, didn't Graham join the Mindbenders in the end days of the Mindbenders? I think he did. He was, you know... John Paul Jones taught Graham to play the bass while he was in London doing the Herman's Hermits things. And wow. Hollies. Graham's an amazing guitar player, amazing guitar player, but he learned the bass from John Paul Jones. And then he, I, we, I watch Graham play guitar yeah. quite a bit because I'm, he's part of that songwriting group, the fraternity that I occasionally hang out with when yeah. we can. And, and I've watched him play guitar. He's, he's incredible. He was always a gifted musician, guitar player, no question about that. So it was a, that's why, and I'm the youngest, you see, of that lot. So I, I got the benefit of uh, hanging onto their coattails and being around when all this stuff was, was happening. This is like early 60s, you know, 65, 66, I guess. And by 69, we did Neanderthal Man, which was the first hit that <laughs> Strawberry Studios, by default, accidentally came up with. And then... Graham was back from America after that because we were doing the Neil Sedaka sessions and Graham was back. Said, hang on, hang on. We got after just yeah. how did these four Jewish lads from this boys' brigade or whatever end, <laughs> end up working with Neil Sedaka? I mean, that's one of the, you know, the great bubblegum pop guy. <laughs> well, he was pre bubblegum because he was, you know, O'Carroll and all those songs in the 50s. He had hits in the 50s and he was actually languishing, hitless 
in that huge building in New York. The the the, uh, the Brill Building. The, yeah, the Brill Building. The Brill. He was languishing in the Brill Building, working for um, Don Kirshner, I think it was, who later went on to produce the Monkeys and all that kind of stuff. And our manager, this Harvey Graham's brother-in-law, was in New York doing the tour of uh, the business, you know, music business, and he came back to Strawberry Studios saying, I've got a great gig for you guys, Neil Sedaka. He's written a whole bunch of songs. It's been, you know, like 10 years, 15 years since he's had a hit. And I think you'd be great producing Neil. And um, Neil came over and... Um, it was a fantastic learning curve, to playing live, because Neil didn't like to overdub. He played piano and sang at the same time. So Eric engineered, and we all, me and Kev and Graham and me, um, played live in the studio, guitar, bass, drums. And um, occasionally Eric overdubbed a guitar part, and we did backing vocals as an overdub, and that was, uh, and it was an amazing, two albums like that and that's where the music takes me for four or five hits it was an amazing learning period because neil was so experienced and so such a wonderful you know musician and you had to keep up we didn't want to do it twice when he got his, his vocals right so we had to we had to get it right as it were. What would, what so would the studio all, have all had those then? years and that that led to 10 cc oh. making sorry I was kind of wondering, Neil Sedaka, what you would have been recording on? Were you four track then, or eight track, or? I think, I think we could well have been eight track by then. Yeah, because I think as soon as we had Neanderthal Man, enough money came into the studio to buy an eight track machine. Could well have been an eight track. I don't think it was sixteen, but my memory is not that great, I'm afraid. But it was like uh, early days. <laughs> was the four of you? Was it the same four members, you know, you, you, Eric, Graham, Kevin, in Hot Legs doing the Unsold Man as it was in 10CC or was there, was there another member involved? It was three of us in Hot Legs. It was, uh, Graham right. was in America. So it was, just, it was just me, Eric and Graham. Me, Why did you stay at Hot Legs? Why did you change to 10CC? Why not stay as Hot Legs if, well, given that you'd had a hit? Well, we had a hit and then we made an album called Think School Stinks, which was released in America, and it didn't do anything. What we did was then we focused on the producing stuff at um, at Strawberry Studios. And when Neil came and spent time with us, he oh. said, you know, you guys are really good. You ought to do something for yourselves. And we said, well, you know, we are trying, as it were. But Graham was with us by then. And so on the downtime at the studio, we would mess about and record tracks. And what we did was we recorded quite a few tracks that, Harvey, the manager, used to take off to a, a label and that label would buy the track, give it a name like Susan's Tuba or something like that, and it would go out and we had bubblegum hits and, you know, bands that were under just an, any old name. It wasn't until we did Donna that Eric said, instead of taking it to one of these other labels, why don't we try Jonathan King? because he knew Jonathan King's label had just started, the UK label. And so Jonathan went for Donna, wanted to release it, and he says, well, look, I'll give you a name, et cetera, et cetera, and we'll do a few records, and, you know, and it caught on. So, so 10CC was born because we sold a track to Jonathan King. And is it true it was Jonathan King saying it was one over the odds? It was Jonathan that came up with the name yeah, 10CC. a standard emission... Jonathan came up with the idea of why don't you call the band 10cc because 
nine cc's, the average male ejaculation. <laughs> and I'm sure you're at least one cc better than that or something. I don't know. It was Jonathan's <laughs> idea. Hadn't Jonathan King dreamt it, though? I read somewhere that he dreamt I'm he not was talking about and playing. I just refuse to discuss Jonathan's dreams. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's a very fair point. But, you know, just ex- explain to me what bubblegum pop is. What is that genre that you were writing for? Who are the artists? And was it, was it a 50s parody that was happening in the late 60s? It was the mid-60s, and it, it was basically two guys called Cassinets and Cats, two guys out of New York that had a, a kind of a record company going. And the aspect of this was that we saw was this producer, Richie, he called himself, what did he have a great, Richie Cordell. Richie Cordell, his real name was Richard Rosenblatt. And um, <laughs> he came over and he was so crazy and he came to strawberry and he had been responsible for all kinds of these pop hits um in the mid 60s that were real lightweight that's why they were called bubblegum pops they were kind of lightweight pop tunes that were all huge hits very simplistic and he'd sit there with the guitar screaming his head off on the and um but he was so full of enthusiasm. And, you know, we'd have to do, like, three or four, five, six songs a day kind of thing. It was um, knocking them out, cheap and cheerful. Um, that's right. The first time I did that, was we went down to Olympic Studios. Remember Olympic yeah, Studios? Yeah, of course. Down there. And, uh, yeah, and uh, we did a bunch of songs there. Very quick and... Um, you know, and you had no say in what went on, really. But it was a good introduction to the discipline of, of being in a recording studio. I, I remember Harvey going to Cassinet's Katz's offices in New York to sit, perhaps get a little bit of money that we were owed, and there was FBI tape all over the doors. <laughs> no sign of Cassinet's Katz. I was going to say, because if you're churning out hits, well, you, well, you, you should have been making quite a bit of money, shouldn't you? No. Oh. <laughs> he says adamantly, no, nope, we didn't get any money. I think we, I don't know, we got like 30, 40 quid, you know, sessions. It, there was no money for, for us in those days. Not for us. I didn't see any money at all, no. But I was never never in it for business or money, I, I have to say, and I'm pretty hopeless with that side of things. But it's just the pleasure of playing with people and, and, uh, and recording. Yeah. Particularly in those days, recording was just such a buzz to be in that world, you know. It still is, to be honest. I love being in the studio. Yeah, so sorry, yeah. I was going to lead up to Donna then, which is more... Because was that really influenced by Zappa? Was that a Reuben and the Jets? Because it was such an ironic sort of song. It, it wasn't consciously influenced by anything i have to say i just just got you know just came out Uh, and it took us you know it's one of those songs uh, me and kev in the back room you see that what happened was that uh, eric and graham had done a song called waterfall and and actually we'd got a deal it was going to go out on the apple label apparently Uh, what they needed was a b-side and um so because Eric and Graham had written the A side, it was decided me and Kev should go and do the B side. And so me and Kev went next door, and it, it took us about, you know, 40 minutes or something to knock out this, something silly like that. And, and like, but when we recorded it, you know, Eric said, Whoa, this is not a B side. This is probably a better A side than Waterfall. So that was when he came up with the idea of Jonathan's new label. 
So he wasn't he wasn't influenced directly by anything. None of the songs were in those days. We were, it was just us doing uh, whatever came out of our heads. Do you know what I mean? But, yeah, but yeah. what guy's saying is right. You you had a and I even felt this as a kid when the music came on the radio. And I, you know I loved Ten CC at the beginning. I adored them. There was I a sense them. of knowingness about it. There was a sense of humour that you were. It was ironic. You were. Um, I, it, it was being serious about itself, but it also had a weight of musicianship behind it and cleverness behind it, you know, in a, in a Steely Dan type way that you couldn't help but absolutely be sucked in by it. I, well, I have to say we were, we were complete fans of uh, Steely Dan. We just loved that, um, you know, the musicianship and the, and the finesse with which it was recorded. Definitely. We did a song on our f- first album. Our early songs, we did this song called Sand in My Face. And you might not remember that one. Hands like hams. You know, it's all about weightlifting and yeah, body Charles and stuff yeah. like that. And a, and a couple of these songs had a kind of wit to them, which was just the way me and Kev wrote lyrics in those days. And I think what happened was that it, it started to bring us a possible kind of identity, a, a way into the nature of, of our songs. Because when Eric and Graham started writing more together, see, Kevin and I have been writing for years, and Eric and Graham just started writing together for this 10cc project, as it were. It seemed to be that this kind of witty, not taking lyrics too seriously, became the, the house style, if you like, the musicianship, you know, well, Eric and Graham's musicianship was there anyway, wasn't it? I mean, and me and Kevin were the art students, always willing to experiment and pushing things, trying to take liberties with the recordings and with the writing. So it, that yeah. was the kind of mix that came out. And I think it became too knowing, really. My old mate, Phil Manzanera from Roxy Music, always says they yeah. credit 10CC with being the people who turned them onto the idea of the recording studio being another instrument. Right. Oh, well, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Because eventually, Kevin and I, I think we designed Phil's studio when oh, he bought the, that the house round in one, Church. the round house place. Yeah. yeah because he, he was virtually, he was virtually next door to Kev's house there, and we, he asked us to organise the layout of his his studio. Because the thing about um, that layout was, I think we were probably the first people to use the control yeah. room. And go direct, you know, plug everything into the desk because you got to monitor everything on the big monitors and it sounded so much better than headphones in the control room. So we organised things so we could do more and more in the control room and, that, and I think that's what we wanted to do with Phil's studio. I mean, that is so ahead of its time, isn't it? Because people do everything in the control yeah. room. Now, oh, like, as an 80s boy, all of my bass sessions were always me in the control room because bass sounds rubbish on headphones. Simple as that. I mean, you know. Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing like being in the in the yeah. control room to get off on on the noise. But I guess the Beatles must have, you know, obviously we all talk about when they stopped playing live and they and they made the studio into an instrument. That must, I mean, obviously it's a big influence on everybody, but particularly you guys as well, messing around with tapes in the studio. Yeah, big influence. George Martin was a, a huge influence on on us certainly because it was him that organised tape loops. You know, number nine, number nine, and that's what always stuck with me, and I, I always fancied experimenting with tape loops and uh, I had the the chance to do it with uh, I'm Not In Love and um, it was a big risk because we spent days recording those vocals and it could have been a complete waste of time. So whose idea was that, Lord? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm pretty sure it was, it was my uh, 
harping on, you know, what would it be like? Didn't if... you actually basically sort of record vocals on every note and then so you use the desk like a keyboard almost, using the faders? Is... Yeah. Yes, that's ex exactly, because we didn't have a Mellotron, but we knew how to make the tapes for the Mellotron, so I, th I just thought, well, why don't we use the desk and each fader has a note on it and um, we conform the... Um, the faders on the desk and it was like all hands on deck when it came to mixing it we each took a fader or two and learned what when to change to follow the chord sequence but the, the magic of it was when when we brought all 13 notes back and we, we heard them low we had this mass harmonics of the ah yeah 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 ah, that was all the notes in so we put a, a piece of tape uh, masking tape and had had the all the faders in and then brought the faders that were needed up from out of that melee of noise for the particular notes of the chord. So there was always all of them in at very low levels, and and it was growing out of that atmosphere of um, of the harmonics. Because at the time, know. I remember, sorry, in in like all this when I used to read beat instrumental and all those max, and, and it was everyone was making such a big deal of it. And the big thing was was everyone was talking about tape hiss, how you'd actually use tape hiss to to make the vocal sound bigger. On every version of recording all, of all of us, over 16 tracks, three or four of us singing, and then bouncing that down to two tracks, and then sending that back to another piece of tape. And each time we had more rever added more reverb to bring out more, more harmonics. And it was more to do with that, I, I suspect. I remember doing a trick. We first did it with the backing vocals of True. We recorded it with Dolby, but then when we didn't decode it coming back because we wanted all the hiss we could find. And I remember thinking right. about thinking about your song there i'm not in love and how to try and get that nice hissy sound but talking about those harmonics i was I, it reminded me of that the string arrangement on it's raining again scott walker you know that track where in the background there's this shimmer of all these different notes that keep sort of right. rubbing into each other and when you did that song it wasn't that originally an eric and graham song and then there is a story that oh, yeah. that, that you because i want to know about your relationship together because you and kevin then wanted to make it not just a, a bland love song if i dare say that yeah because we have jumped ahead a bit here in that because that was when that happened like that was a very straight ahead song i mean brilliant lyrically brilliant concept but but this came brilliant. came brilliant. after that fantastic run you had of real art school very funny kind of, you know, arch songs, you know, Good Morning Judge and The Dean and I and, and, and Rubber Bullets, of course, and Art for Art's Sake. I mean, so, which was, which seemed in a very different vein. So I'm Not In Love was like the first one that was really serious. Yeah, you're right. It was, took a completely different tack and um, it was this Eric's lyric, basically. Definitely the, um, to my mind, you know, his masterpiece in terms of writing a song. You know, and he was relatively... Knew it. That was nineteen seventy-five, and all the other like never, through seventy-four, I suppose. Kevin and I were sort of the writing team. Graham obviously had been writing, but he didn't write in that vein at all. The in the the hippy happy uh, witty wacky <laughs> lyric <laughs> department. It took too nuts to do that. <laughs> but that was Eric's thing. The I'm not in love look, but. The problem was when we first recorded it, it was the feel we recorded it with. Well, we always started off with, you know, the two acoustics and Graham. Graham was acoustic guitar maestro. And when they first did it with acoustic guitars, it just sounded so dull and boring, the groove. There was no groove, basically. And we were all underwhelmed. And uh, <clears throat> so we moved on 
to another song, to a whole album oh, wow. worth of other songs. <clears throat> and at the end, it was me that said, you know, I love that song. We can't waste that I'm Not In Love song because it's such a great song. But let's modify it. It was too long, so we edited it a bit, added a few ideas, and then I mentioned this sound of um, you know, voice loops. Let's try that. So we're near the end of this album, and... Um, we went for it, and my God, you know, we couldn't believe the result ourselves. It was a, one of those fabulous shocks you get when you play it back, and it's just magical, and uh, we just knew we had something special there. And so that was that. Don't get mistaken with the last track that me and Kev did with the boys. It was the song that broke the band, was The Things We Do For Love. That was another of these ballad things where me and Kev were just... We'd done that, you know, we didn't want to do another uh, wimpy love song, so we got very adamant about that. I mean, probably a bit arrogant as well. But um, that was the song that broke the band. Well, that's sort of similar to, I remember someone saying, me, can you imagine what John Lennon was like in the studio when Paul brought up Obla D, Obla Da? Is that, is that, are you serious, Paul? But, but Art for Art's Sake was one of Graham's, wasn't it? That was his lyric, anyway. I think it's something his, his dads used to say Art for Art's Sake, money for God's sake. Exactly. That was what one of Graham and his dad's crackers, that. Yes, yeah, absolutely. That was, yeah. And that was lovely. And that was a fun arrangement. The thing about it, I guess what me and Kev were a bit, what was it, um, a low threshold of boredom. So there had to be something novel in the idea for the track preferably an idea in the track. I mean, that's what Kevin and I are sort of based everything on. Is there an idea? We have to have an idea first before we can do anything. And, um, you know, and, and sometimes we're lacking. Is, is it humour? Was were you, were you sort of, Did you grow up on, on the sort of wacky sort of uh, university kind of songs that were extremely funny but witty and clever at the same time? I mean, what was the influence for that? I don't know. It was could have been a bit a cross between Danny Kay, <laughs> the festival with the yeah, Mercury. I like it, <laughs> and uh, Gene Kelly. I used to love all those musical Hollywood musicals in the because I was definitely brought up on a lot of TV music. You know, from the in the fifties, we got to see these MGM musicals and things. I loved all that, and that got absorbed definitely, but not particularly. I wasn't aware of like uh, funny records like um, it was that, <laughs> that George Martin produced a bunch. Yeah, yeah. well, that's it right. Was, um, yeah, Bernard Cribbins and the, and the Goons and stuff. Like that. Just to say that what's extraordinary about Ten CC and what really impresses me and inspires me, but frustrates me with the modern charts, is the fact that you could put out a song like "I'm Mandy." Or art for art's sake, which is so complex. Yeah. I mean, I Mandy is is just a piece of genius, and you could chart that. That would go top five. That would get played on Radio One. That would be a five and a half minute song, maybe even yeah. longer. It was strange that we were getting away with that. And um, kind of, how do you figure it? Because we had Doreen Davies. Remember that name? Sort of um, no? in charge. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Of, of picking the song, she was in charge of the, the team at the BBC, Radio <laughs> 1. We had with visions of what Doreen might look like, a headmistress of some sort, you know. Um, could you get your track past Doreen Davies? Because if you didn't, it didn't get played. And yet we got these extraordinary tracks played, which weren't as middle of the road and bland as some of the others that were out in the pop department. But they were all very up, weren't they? I mean, they had a, a fantastic lightness about them, which made them very radio-friendly, you know. Yeah, they must have had something to let the... DJs go for it. Well, no, the thing you is, know, because the floor is you yours. and Kevin, um, you know, obviously have such a, a visual sense. It's very important. Was it a fun working relationship with Hypnosis? Because you must have been like a dream gig for them. Because your album covers were fantastic. Yeah. Weren't they great? Yeah, we had a great relationship with Hypnosis because they were like a bit like me and Kev, I suppose. So probably we related Storm to and Poe. Because Storm and Poe. And um, the interesting thing was that they present you with a, a whole bunch of ideas like sketches or rough photographs, which they'd either come up with when they'd heard the tracks or there were ideas that they hadn't managed to use sell to anybody else yet. <laughs> so they'd present you with a whole bunch of images. And it was a delight, you know, to have the choice. And, you know, they were just so keen. And um, we, me and Kevin... I've definitely appreciated the nature of the, the the detail and the finish they put into their work because we'd been trained as graphic designers ourselves. Both Kev and I did graphic design, him at Stoke-on-Trent College and me in Birmingham in the 60s. Ah, my first job was graphic designer. Oh, I never really? Studied it. I never, no, I just... But you did I it? I did it, yeah, for a little audio-visual uh-huh. company in Belsize Park. <laughs> right. Well, I never, ever got a job because I, I left art college with my degree in... in graphic design and I had a hit record with Neanderthal Man so that was it I was in and I did the album cover for you know the Ted CC logo and then for uh, oh what the, the sort Kevin of pumped up album. thing yeah. yes that was a, Jonathan took that from a sketch I did with a biro on a piece of paper and had that rendered in colour and that became the first album cover and I remember me and Kevin did the first Hot Legs Think School Stinks that album we did that album cover, and then what do you know? But and the same week it came out, Alice Cooper in America came out with his first album after that big hit he had, and he ripped off our cover. It was exactly the same cover. It's a desk, isn't it? With with all uh, yeah. scratching, school oh, yeah, desk yeah, 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 graffiti. Yeah. Except yeah, yours didn't yeah. have a pair of paper knickers inside, did it? No. Do, do you remember? Can you believe that actually? That that could be a thing. It would, you know, that in those days you could buy that album, Alice Cooper album, and opened it up, and there was a 
pair of girls' knickers inside. Simpler times. Simpler, Simpler times. times. Wow. I, well, I was thinking more that the record company wouldn't pay for it, but, you know. No, absolutely unbelievable. But, you know, you, we're talking about the breakup of 10CC. It's a shocking thing, I remember. And I'm really careful when I talk to you in case I say, oh, oh my God, do I love that track, you know, Dreadlock Holiday. And, of course, you're not on it. Well, I get that all the time. It's easy to confuse, you know, to get... No, but it, I mean, I love your period. I love I love your art school input. Well, to be honest, yeah, because but, but, you left and then punk happened. So, basically, 10CC went off the radar for, for us lot anyway. So, you couldn't have timed that better. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and boy, did me and Kevin get that. It was so funny because we'd left the band. We were buried at uh, Virgin, the Manor Studios, for like 13 months, slaving away on this thing that was about to cost thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds. Constantly. And meanwhile, Johnny Rotten was <laughs> coming out with <laughs> this, <laughs> this punk thing where, you know, we were so out of vogue by the time we'd released, finished our, our recording. It was hilarious, really. His album was paying for your studio, though. <laughs> the album Consequences, the triple album that took you a year and a half which is extraordinary as if you look on stephen wilson's website stephen wilson the great prog artist uh wonderful musician he puts it down as one of his favorite albums of all time i mean it, it's now it's time for a rebirth of consequences because it was it was all about the Gizmotron, wasn't it? Right. I, I remember yeah. reading so much about this at the time, and I was so excited. As were you. You'd made out that how literally music was just going to change altogether. That you'd basically rewritten the whole new book with this new thing. Describe the Gizmotron. I always, I always was modest in my ambitions. <laughs> it was a, a realization of, of a dream. You know, people say, "What would you like for Christmas?" I always used to say, I, I want an orchestra, please. It's <laughs> <laughs> like a cartoon in the New York Times, isn't it? That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. so, so, I don't know, me and Kev were, were typically, you know, wrecked one night. We went down to the studio, Strawberry, and we, we were, I think we were in there virtually alone, which was always dangerous. <laughs> and we thought, now look here, now, it must be possible to bow a guitar... So we gaffer taped my strat to the back wall and then we went into the workshops and we got an electric drill and we put a little rubber washer at the end of the bit, the drill bit, and then very, very carefully we approached, <laughs> we approached the guitar and started with trying to get the little rubber washer to spin against the strings of the guitar. And lo and behold... It made a kind of, you know, wow. bowing noise. So that was proof of concept. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so then we had to figure out, okay, well, how do we make a little device that can fit to the guitar that allows you to bow each string individually or together? Now, how on earth do we do that? So we spent a fair amount of time trying to think that out. How, what would it be? How can it work? Not being engineers or anything like that. And I swear to God, I was driving back from Birmingham on the M6, and I saw it in 3D, this thing. <laughs> and the whole principle came to me like a Leonardo drawing. I was going to so say got... Leonardo. It sounds exactly like that. Or more <laughs> Heath <laughs> Robinson. More Heath Robinson. Yeah, exactly. I, I had my Leonardo, and I drew this thing. The point was, we went and had a little prototype built, 
and we had this amazing man called John McConnell who worked at the University of Manchester, who was the guy who in, co-invented and built the Merlin engine for the Spitfire. Oh, my God. Um, wow. I know, amazing. Wow. And he built us our little prototype and worked, and that was it. And this then, is like the bouncing then, bomb. Right yeah, the, okay. yeah. <laughs> it, was a, it was a bit of a bouncing bomb by the time it finished it. <laughs> <laughs> because in production, it was all over the place. And Musitronic, for the best one in the world, they're an electronics company. They made, do you remember the biphase? Did you have a biphase? Yes, the Mutron biphase. Yeah. Well, I have well, one, yes. Yeah, me too. And, and those are the Sorry. guys that, that wanted to <laughs> build, the, um, build the gizmo. So we gave them permission, the license to do it, and they got it to such a level, which was pretty good, but where they blew it was, and here's another interesting thing, through them, I met Robert Moog, you see, because they were an electronics company, Aaron, who ran it, thought he could improve the sound of the gizmo by getting Robert Moog involved, so I met Bob Moog. Oh, so good, sorry, sorry. Could you just settle one thing for once and for all? For I know, you've got to say the him. pronunciation. You met you? him. Yes. Is it Moog or Moog? You're saying Moog, so I'm guessing Moog. I always think of it as Bob Moog. Yeah, and that's why he never spoke yeah, to you again, Lol. So we met Bob <laughs> Moog, and he was lovely. But the only thing was, electronics made no difference. This is a mechanical contraption. And the money Aaron spent on getting Bob Moog involved was wasted because he should have spent that money ah. on a universal mount so that guitars of all different shapes and, and size of the body shapes could have a, a universal mount. He didn't do that, and that's where it all fell down, for, in my opinion. And um, But listen, what tracks could the listener go to to really listen to the gizmo? The only track, really, where it features on is Old Wild Men on a 10cc song, and that's me playing my prototype which on my strap which i toured with which i played 10cc and every time we did oh wow man that that kind of it sounds more like a bunch of mandolins than strings there i guess because it's a similar that, idea that, that, to i'm not in love isn't it this this endless loop of sounds you know i, I use an ebo on stage still and i love that and try to track that up with harmonies before in a studio it's a fantastic it's like a hurdy-gurdy I, so, Lord, when you left the band, so what happened with Strawberry? Was that awkward? I mean, didn't you all own that? Or No, we did not all own that. Strawberry was owned by Eric and Graham and Kennedy Street Artists, the management company in Manchester. But um, that wasn't an issue and because Kevin and I were fairly happy to step away from everything and we didn't want to get in the way of the boys carrying on with what they wanted to do. And the funny thing was that when I moved down and built my house here in Netherhead, we were going towards Kevin's house, which is the opposite direction. And I passed this building, and, it, and I don't know if you remember this place, Guy or, or Gary, right next to, or virtually on the next street to my house, Surrey Sound Studios. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah, no, I've worked N there, yeah. Nigel, the good doctor. So I popped in and I couldn't believe it because it was like literally around the corner from my house and on the way back from Kevin's house in Jersey. So we, we moved into Nigel's place and helped him update from his 16 to 24 track. And, and then we started working there. And, of course, that's where the police came to and that's how we met the boys there and, uh, and all the punk stuff that Nigel... Yeah, because you did the video for Every Breath You Take, didn't you? 
Yes, we did a bunch of videos for the police, and um, that was partially because we met the boys at Surrey Sound, and I, I guess. And Nigel's was, was, you know, he was a doctor actually, and then but his hobby was engineering. Is that the Nigel who went on to buy all those studios in London? No, no. To, oh no, I wasn't one. Okay, sorry. No. You're just making <laughs> plans for Nigel now, aren't you, Guy? Um, <laughs> oh, very good. Godly and Cream. I think, with a sort of Gilbert and George of music, weren't you, really? I mean, <laughs> you were the thinking person's pet shop boys. <laughs> you know, it, <laughs> those records, I mean, I urge everyone to go and just listen to the to Godly and Cream's greatest yeah. hits. I mean, the extraordinary sort of music going from The Lost Weekend, which is, uh, oh, I mean, has a real God. film noir feel to it, to the mental lyrics of Snack Attack. And, and actually, funnily enough, you working with Sting, you were the first guys yeah, to yeah. write a song called Englishman in New York. Englishman in New York, yeah. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And we said to him, it'd be nice if we get the PRS mixed up. <laughs> and also and of course the incredibly risque girls on film for Duran Duran oh, oh of course yes. the joy with that one apart from the actual the filming of it which was, was fun and the story behind that was that the, the managers came out to my house here to talk to me and Kev about this potential doing a, a video for for the boys, Duran Duran, who we didn't know from Adam. And um, they said, look, now look, you can do whatever you want. And the point is, this doesn't have to go on television. It doesn't have to be suitable for the BBC because we're going to launch the boys in the States in discos, video discos in New York. So we want something that will just catch everyone's attention and they go away talking about this video and the boys don't have to be in it but it has to be you know somehow noticed and they said you can do whatever you want and we suggest you use sex <laughs> <laughs> so, so Kevin and I looked at each other and took about a, you know a heartbeat I said, we'll think about it. Yes, I think we could possibly come up with something like that. And then we went off on our separate holidays. Kev went, I don't know, France, and I went, I went to America. And we both spent two weeks apart thinking of what can we do with this to do with sex, a sex video. I mean, Kevin, that's right, because his wife was into the fashion business. He came up with the... Um, the notion of something to do with a, a fashion runway, something to do with a, like a, a you know a models on a on a fashion catwalk. runway I, catwalk, yeah. and I'd been to see <laughs> this guy that I'd met out there that took me to see mud wrestling, <laughs> <laughs> the, the girls mud wrestling. I've never yeah. seen mud wrestling. <laughs> it was so, and when we put those two notions together, we yeah. came, you know, it, it, yeah, I remember what, being really disappointed as as Duran Duran's other band, as it were that we couldn't have come up with a video like quite like that to supervise. I'll tell you what, but the most interesting aspect of making that video was that was the first time we ever tried editing the sound of the record that we had to make a video for because we needed an extra verse or two or an extra bit of this, that and the other because we had so much good footage. And we extended it and the boys never even noticed. We... Because the editing in video can be so precise, and we were editing in sound and manipulating the sound here and there on videos, and that was a real revelation that you could do that in a video edit suite. I, I think this is what is so good about 
you guys and your career is that in the mid 70s and early 70s you're making these extraordinary pop songs and then you managed to survive punk with a triple box set prog album but then go into (laughs) the 80s and completely become the 80s because you totally took on board the visual side of what was going to go on the mtv side you know you made one of the most extraordinary videos with cry and you had Trevor Horn producing it. I mean, you were absolutely crossing the decades. And there was nothing 70s about you by the time you got into the, the 80s with your career. Oh, yeah. There's another one I want to bring up. Because I was actually there when you filmed this. I was actually hiding behind the sofa on one of the run-throughs. I don't know why I was at the studio. But, oh, um, and I believe, that, uh, of, I believe it was because of racism when you did Rocket for Herbie Hancock. And well, yeah, for some reason I popped. It was a studio in Battersea, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I'm actually hiding behind the sofa on one of the runs through. Are you serious? Yeah, that is that is that is weird. Were you hiding from the police or something? What was it? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't know. I, was, I don't know why I was there, but I was. <laughs> My goodness me! Well, you probably looked like one of the dummies that we used, and we couldn't tell yeah, the difference. <laughs> <laughs> was that a thing? You weren't allowed to but, shoot but yeah, but, Herbie what Hancock. Was, yeah, the brief on that came from Herbie's manager, and he said we're having a lot of trouble. You know. They're not showing black people on MTV. They've shown Michael Jackson, but that's about it. And so, again, we suggest you do a video that doesn't have much of Herbie in it. And can you find some other way of doing a video that gets on MTV? Because it's a great track. That's an amazing track. Oh, it's a wonderful track. So the centre of the track, and um, it just so happens that Kevin had seen this documentary this little clip that they have on these magazine shows at the news. And he said, did you see that clip about that guy, that artist? It's his art. He's a sculptor, but it's all these mad, crazy characters he makes out of spare bits that he finds in scrap heaps. So I said, no. So he managed, I think, to get a copy of that little clip. Once we saw this stuff that Jim was doing as his art, we thought, that is amazing. And if it's mechanical... Maybe we can scratch it in visual terms because the record had this scratching, oh, yeah, thing, yeah. didn't it? Oh, yeah, and yeah. that was new. And so we thought, well, there's an angle to scratch video, edit it going backwards and forwards. So we met Jim. That was hilarious, meeting Jim, the artist. And, of course, <laughs> the funny story is that we made the video and you're there in that edit probably, uh, at the back there, guy, somewhere. But when (laughs) when it came time to the Grammys, now you've got to imagine that Jim's this starving artist that, you know, lives in, at the time it seemed like absolute squalor. And he was surrounded by these things he made that would look scary in in his house, you know, these, these contraptions that worked off compressed air and stuff like that. But when it came time for the Grammys, Herbie insisted that... Some of those robots, the legs, those dancing legs that he had, yeah, those yeah. amazing legs, could they be possibly shipped over and used at the live show at the Grammys? So <laughs> the next thing we hear is that Jim, who's going to the Grammys, insists on a first-class ticket for him and Veronica. And we're... <laughs> who's, who's Veronica? Who's Veronica? Well, Veronica is that crazy thing with a, a light bulb for a head that comes swinging around into the mirror in the bedroom. That contraption was Veronica. And Veronica had to have a seat next to Jim on the aeroplane. Brilliant publicity. 
Yes, wonderful, wasn't it? It was what a lovely character. I, I, I want to ask you about a track, I Pity Inanimate Objects. Anyway, everyone should listen to it if they haven't heard it before. It's talking about using a studio as an instrument. How, how did you do that mad vocal stuff? It was dead simple. So totally simple because we had the, that, the harmonizer. Remember that box, the harmonizer? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, the Eventide, yeah. Exactly. Uh, what happened was Eventide brought out a little small keyboard that allowed you to control the harmonizer. And so as soon as Nigel got one of those there to test, the first thing we thought was, oh, what would happen if, I don't know whether it was me or whether it was Kev, to do the, the vocal entirely in a monotone. I think he did it in a monotone. I read the inanimate object because they cannot move. And I played the notes because they cannot move. I played the tune <laughs> on the keyboard. And that was it. You know, like one take type of thing in those days. Everything was like one. And, and that's just how you do vocals now, isn't it? <laughs> that's how that is. That is. That's, yeah, that sounded, yeah. just sounded like Dua Lipa, wouldn't it? You know. was, was Zappa a big influence on you, Lowell? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we were huge fans of Zappa. You, you know. In fact, we met him because... He came to London and he asked to see if he could see the gizmo. He wanted to borrow the gizmo and have a go with the gizmo. So we got to meet Frank. I thought of him when you said, when uh, as a kid, when you were asked what you wanted for Christmas and you said an orchestra. Because when he was six years old, when he was asked what he wanted for Christmas, he wanted a phone call with some great avant-garde composer. Really? He said, I don't want any things. Yeah, and so his parents found the number of this guy and they called him up. And he spoke to this composer, and that was his Christmas present. I sat, in the, <laughs> I sat in the same room as a fantastic composer, and you'll never guess who it was, Stravinsky. And you'll never guess wow. where. It was in the offices waiting for to be interviewed at the Beatles' Apple offices. The well, Apple. Stravinsky was hustling the Beatles? <laughs> I, well, they were supposed to be there to interview all kinds of young people or whatever people that had ideas that could be maybe exploited by Apple. So I remember being there, clutching some daft musical that me and Kevin written, I think. And uh, and there in the office was this old gentleman with a fantastic walking stick with a silver top. And he went into the office. With, I don't know what went on, but he came out and said, <laughs> that was Igor Stravinsky. <laughs> They didn't use it, you know. <laughs> Let me just ask this. Why is it that you think so many great Jewish writers have that ability to really make witty, urban... Like, I mean, I'm thinking of you and, and, and Steely Dan, you know, um, Dan, yeah. e even, you know, Sondheim. You know, that ability to just stand outside and be great observers and witty observers of life and all the stupidity of it. It's fairly common knowledge that Jewish people have a very well-developed sense of humour and wit. And it's because they've always used it as a mechanism for defence, you know, always being on the outside and being outside and treated as something like that. Mm. Humour's a fantastic way to deal with all the negative things that come your way. And I think it's a massive part of uh, Jewish culture. That's why they become great comics and yeah. they become the wits and all the rest of it good writers i think it's inbuilt and what happened to you and kev in the end when did it did you go your separate ways i mean what's been the story since those great days yeah we did go our separate ways we, we'd worked together for like 25 27 years and uh, we'd had a fantastic time really and, and you know everything we did did really well you know we, we were blundering along happily like a couple of forever 
art students. But, you know, funnily enough, these things, you know, they caught on and we had a lot of success with the, the different fields we tried. And um, it was great. But the one thing was that we spent so much time together that I think what, what happened was that just domestically didn't work, you know, for certainly on Kev's side. I think he needed to be away from me and spend more time with his family, his wife. He needed to be away from me for a bit, or actually forever. And I was shocked. I wasn't expecting it at all. But, you know, it was a big change, in, a huge change in my life. I think I was just 40 or something like that because we still needed to make a living. You know, we were, it wasn't like we were squillionaires or anything. I had to carry on making a living, but this time on my own, and I had never worked on my own, ever. I decided to try my chance in America because I'd never – the only – ambition I had not fulfilled was I wanted to make a full-length feature film and so did Kev at, at first but he he grew out of that he, he went off that because we we got knocked back a lot even though we were successful at doing these video things and commercials we still couldn't get a feature film off the ground so Anjan my wife and I we decided that I was free now so I would go to America and see if I could make a living in America and possibly even be around where movies are made so that I could maybe get a chance to make a feature film. And that's what I did. I, I went to L.A. and I, I was really lucky that um, someone had confidence in me to do a TV commercial, a series of commercials, you know, without my partner because I was known as Godly and Cream. But someone took a punt on me and, and these commercials I did all were very, very successful. I did 17 commercials with Tina Turner promoting the brand new range of Chrysler Plymouth motor vehicles, the whole range. Mm. <laughs> I did those for three years on the trot or two or three years. So I got off to a flying start there. So I spent the next 12, 13 years in LA and, and I did get to make a film, ironically, for Chris Blackwell, you know, with um, From Island on Records. Island Film. And what was the film? What was the film? And the film, it was a Jamaican black, literally black comedy, a novel written by a guy called Tony Winkler, and it was called The Lunatic, and it was about this... It was actually about a vagabond, a sort of autistic type of guy, lived out in the scrub jungle in Jamaica, and it was a sort of comedy, you know, and um, Chris gave me the, the gig, he let me make his movie, and I had a fantastic year. And then um, it did really well in Jamaica. It was, you know, I got a letter from the Prime Minister saying, wonderful, it's a masterpiece. And all the copies in the video shops in America and England were pinched by Jamaicans who wouldn't take it back. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was my... And then, and the funny thing is, my ambition was to design animation characters for Walt Disney. And I sent him, when I was seven, a, a bunch of drawings, and he turned me down flat. <laughs> but the irony was, when I went to art college, I went there with a view to making animated films. And I made one. And, you know, after I'd made it, I didn't want to do it anymore. I thought, well, I've done that, and I don't want to do it anymore. And that career thing went out of my mind completely. So I made <laughs> this movie. I made this feature film. And I really loved it. But, you know... It took a, a nine months to do a movie. I didn't want to do another one unless it was something so special. And I kind of got into something else. I took up painting instead in LA in between jobs. Have you had exhibitions? Do you sell your paintings? Yes, and say, can we see you? I've had, uh, well, with difficulty. I did have an exhibition in Texas, in Houston, and I hated that because I have to be honest, you know, 
I had this exhibition and pictures were all over the place and people bought them. But I, I was walking past and I heard this um, woman, text woman, saying to her interior designer, do I like this one? <laughs> I thought that's it. I'm, I'm not doing this again. <laughs> art for art's sake, money for God's sake. Exactly. Exactly. L- Lowell, so, you joined. You joined Art of Noise in the end as well, didn't you? Yes, I did. You know, I got the invitation from uh, Trev and Dan. You know, and oh, I love that we did the Debussy album. You must love still hanging out with Trevor. Then Trevor Horn is using you as your his go to session player still. But really, it's just you, you know, you're like minded people, aren't you? You're both you're both artists. I know what it is. I've seen it. It's just the two of you sitting around telling stories to each other all day. Come on, be honest. Yeah. Well, look, 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 with Trevor, it's the same old story. I mean, I keep getting the same story, but I don't know where. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, it was obvious, you know, you know we, we got on great from day one. And I just love his approach to music and recording. He's the perfect producer for someone like me because it makes it so easy for me and yeah. I'm so it keeps me keen to want to do it. And uh, whatever he's got in mind, I'll try. And, and anything I suggest, he's game for trying. That's what I like. If I say, what would it be like if there's no questions about it, we try it, and if it's not right, you move on. It was a lovely balance, not knowing what we're supposed to do because there's no rules. Having a go, you could, you'd never get that kind of uh, help from Polydor and from, you know, Warner Brothers. <laughs> yeah. oh, some of the ridiculous shit we got from the record companies. Um for example, Debbie, it came that point in the video world where the record companies were hiring video people to commission, video commissioners, these, oh, ex- yeah, yeah. these experts, right? So what you had to do was you had to explain your idea to the video commissioner. Good God. So, for example, <laughs> so do you really think, this is with regards to, uh, Herbie Hancock's rocket. She says, "Do you really think that robots can keep people's interest for three and a half minutes?" Oh. <laughs> tell that to Steven <laughs> Spielberg. Yes, tell yes. that to. Yeah. Do you know we had Trevor Horn on in one of our earlier episodes, lol, and and we mentioned your name, and he said, "Ah, oh, that reminds me, I've got a story to tell him." So <laughs> I'm hoping it's the same one. <laughs> um, it's been great having you on, lol. Lol, it's been an absolute delight, mate. Great. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. you, you, Finally got it. I mean, what's extraordinary talking to you is you realise, you know, how you have just been out there reinventing the business endlessly. And and if I ever see a gizmo in a shop, I think I might have to buy it. I'm going straight from here to eBay. (laughs) Yeah. Once you get it on the guitar, it's a faff to get it to sit right and you have to f- sit and then and kind of fine noodle the positioning of the wheels. But once you get it working, it's so easy to play. I mean, I used to love demonstrating it and um, it was fun. When we've all had our vaccinations, we'll all get together and we'll see you and we'll, thanks we'll so you. much. Yeah, Absolutely. no doubt. You'll play with us again, you guys. Yeah. I forgot, that's right. I did uh, Through the Barricades with you with you guys. Do you remember yeah. we did that a few years ago? God, that was an honour. Absolutely, it was it was great. We loved doing that. We loved learning these new songs and interesting songs. And, and uh, we hope we did it justice for you. Oh, and, um, it, was, oh. it was great fun for us. It was wonderful. We loved doing that shit. Wonderful. Lots of love to you, Lowell. All the best. See you soon. Bye. See you. Take care, Lowell. Cheers. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.